Hello, it's Kamal Ahmed here, and I'm here to tell you about Energized. The brand new podcast, Intelligent Squared, is launching in partnership with eBedrola. The climate crisis is the most pressing issue of our time. Temperatures are set to rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next two decades, an increase that will cause irreversible damage to our planet. But is there still hope? If humans are to blame for climate change, then we must also provide the solutions. And that's where Energized comes in. Join me as I bring together experts and policymakers to delve deep into the key issues at the heart of the global drive towards net zero and the innovations that promise to accelerate the energy transition and transform the way we live. Just search Energized wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the show, Will McCaskill, the philosopher thinking a million years into the future, who's also having a bit of a moment in the present. He'll be joining us to discuss his new book, What We Owe the Future. Will McCaskill is Associate Professor in Philosophy and a Research Fellow at the Global Priorities Institute at the University of Oxford. He's a co-founder of the Effective Altruism Movement, which uses evidence and reason as the driver to help maximise how we can better resource the world. McCaskill's writing has found fans ranging from Elon Musk to Stephen Fry, and his new book is What We Owe the Future, A Million Year View, which, as the title suggests, takes a long-term approach to issues ranging from the climate to AI. Our host today is Max Rosar, director of the Oxford Martin Programme on Global Development and founder and editor of Our World in Data. Let's join Will McCaskill and Max in conversation now. Hi, Will. Great to speak with you today. Uh, yeah, it's great to be on here. Intelligent Squared, thank you for hosting this, Max. Um, I was saying your new book is about long-termism and try to give a brief explanation of what it is. What, in your own words, is long-termism? Yeah, so long-termism is the view that uh, we should be doing much more to protect the interests of future generations than we're currently doing today. That's the key idea. How long-term are you thinking in, in, <laughs> uh, when you're thinking about long-termism? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, in principle, indefinitely long. The core ideas behind long-termism are that future people matter, that there could be a lot of them, and that we can make a difference to how well their lives go. And in principle, at least, I think it, if you're affecting the life of someone, it doesn't matter whether they will live you know, in 100 years' time or 1,000 years' time or 100 million years' time. I think their interests count kind of just the same. And I actually think, and it's very surprising, um, it took me a while to 
come around to this view that there are things that we are doing kind of and or that will happen in our lifetimes that could make a difference to not just you know the next few generations but actually potentially all generations to come and i think in expectation humanity's life expectancy could be very long in which case we're talking about potentially hundreds of millions or even billions of years i mean maybe one one way to understand this idea better is to uh, see the differences with with more widely known ethical ideas one idea that is now very widely accepted and uh, that many people have a relationship to is the idea of sustainability where the classic definition is to meet the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. How is long-termism different from sustainability as an ethical idea? Yeah, so if that's the definition of sustainability we use, there's obviously an enormous amount in common, namely that both are paying much more attention to future generations. However, uh, I would want to say that Look, we should treat, there's nothing special about future generations, morally speaking. And this principle you suggested of, well, helping, you know, not compromising on the needs of the present while ensuring that future generations are kind of at least as well off. Well, it suggests that's like a different way of thinking morally than the need, than when comparing the interests of people in Germany versus the UK versus Uganda. And I would want to say that, well, just whatever kind of moral reasoning we use when thinking about the impact you could have on the life of someone in the United Kingdom versus a poor country versus the United States, we should apply that same sort of reasoning to people in the future as well. Because, you know, they will have, be people that have interests and hopes and joys and fears like the rest of us. Is there maybe like a, a practical example for where that difference actually matters? Like something that you would do as a long-termist that you wouldn't do as someone who's concerned about sustainability? I mean, one obvious thought is the issue of extinction risk, where there are some risks that will not only be enormously harmful for the present generation, such as kind of worst case pandemics, but would also kind of Uh, derail the whole of humanity's future by just bringing human civilization to an end. And if we're thinking in terms of like, well, ensure that the needs of future generations are met. Well, if there are no future generations at all, uh, because we've gone extinct, then it's like, it's hard to see how that principle would apply. Whereas um, one of the things I think that we really should care about is just, you know, the enormous potential loss in terms of kind of well-being and further development and accomplishment that would occur if you know, the human race were to completely end. And so that, that would be a kind of concrete difference. Right. I mean, that's, that's maybe a second um, ethical idea that I wanted to, to understand the, the difference with long-termism a bit uh, better. Um, I think many people are concerned about large-scale catastrophes that are possibly so large that they could possibly kill everyone um, in the world from nuclear war or um, a really worst-case pandemic. And... Even I, like as a, a relatively optimistic person, I, I'm, I'm very worried about these risks and, and take them seriously as, as possibilities uh, that I want to avoid in, in my own lifetime. And even just as a self-interested person who is not taking into account what, what might happen to others uh, necessarily when I'm thinking about this, I'm concerned about existential risks. And if I'm already there, just 
being worried about my own future and the future maybe of my children and and those close to me why would i um what what difference would it make uh to take a long-termist ethical perspective like what extra extra worries do i have as a long-termist that i don't have anyways as someone who's concerned about um existential risks uh sure so um i mean i think there's a few things so one is just even if there was no differences in the kind of how you act if you're already concerned. I do kind of think it's good for people to have kind of what I would regard as kind of a correct model understanding of the world. Because, I don't know, perhaps we do really well at reducing these existential risks, but perhaps there's more that we can be doing to benefit future generations. A second is that I think that positively impacting the long-term future isn't just around about, you know, reducing these kind of worst-case catastrophes. As I talk about in the book at some length, I also think it's about trying to improve the values that might guide future generations too, where it seems to me at least plausible that the values that are predominant over you know, the coming few centuries actually could have extraordinarily long-lasting influence, and that it's a relatively contingent matter whether those values are good or whether they're bad. So I think it was conting you know, historically contingent that after the Second World War, it was kind of liberal democratic values that were predominant rather than Stalinist or Nazi values. And I actually think the very long-term future would have looked worse if it had been kind of fascist values that had um, come out predominant. Right. Although, of course, those people at that time, they were not necessarily worrying about us in 2022. They were just worried about what, what might happen next year, tomorrow, uh, in Germany, in Russia, in, in the US. Yeah, so I think it changes how you prioritize too. Yeah, where um, I think all of these things I'm pointing to, they are just really bad in the present as well. So, I mean, I kind of, you know, in a slogan, it's like think long-term or act now or like <laughs> near-term risks with long-term consequences. So they all do have our pressing concerns now. And I think if the human race as a whole or society as a whole had its act together, we would be spending vastly more to prevent the next pandemic, to carefully guide development of AI, to be working on better values. But there's a question of like, well, what's very most important? You know, if you're someone who's altruistically minded and really motivated, what should we be doing to do as much good as possible? The claim that society as a whole should be trying to do more. Well, there's still this question of like, okay, as an individual, if you want to have the biggest impact, should you be focusing on things that have really large kind of short-run impacts, but where it's not really clear how that translates into longer-term impacts? So with effective altruism, one of the things we've done is kind of corporate cage-free campaigns to give animals on factory farms just better living conditions. And that's averted a huge amount of suffering, I think, but it's not really clear like what are the long-lasting impacts of that. And so that's a way in which I would think, okay, no, there are some things that are good, not just in the present, but over the long term too, and they become comparatively more important. Um, if we've got to make these hard trade-offs, then we start to focus on them more. Jack, to stay on this uh, question of, of values and the political regimes that we, we try to uh, support and uh, strive for, like if you hadn't published this book today, but you had lived 100 years earlier and it was uh, the 1st of September 1922, um, and people would have been convinced about the importance of long-termism what would they have done differently back then that could have made us now better off? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the values is the key thing. So, I mean, in the 1920s, there are, well, actually, there's a few kind of trends. 
So one thing is just that the basic understanding of the greenhouse effect and warming from carbon dioxide. 1896 was the first quantitative estimate, and it was surprisingly good, actually. At the time, people didn't appreciate just how much carbon we were going to emit into the atmosphere. But I actually think that with like further work, that should have been predictable because it's just based on an exponentially growing economy. And so one thing that we could have started doing is like, imagine if we got started with the kind of campaign to be concerned about climate change, you know, 60 years earlier or 50 years earlier than we'd done. You could have engaged in like very gentle long-term planning that like people wouldn't have opposed. Perhaps it's a carbon tax that's like one penny per ton to begin with. And then it just gradually scales up over time. You could have normalized these ideas and it could have been like uh, pretty painless. I think we could have just like essentially avoided the problem of climate change. We would have been acting on more speculative evidence, but I think the gains from acting early would have outweighed the losses from having to act on more speculative evidence. And so I actually kind of see a lot of the issues I'm pointing to, such as around engineered pathogens and artificial intelligence, as kind of like that, you know, climate change in the 1920s or something. So that's one thing. Then secondly is uh, priorities that I still think are important, which are uh, ensuring good values, thinking about future technological developments, thinking about the like how bad the risk of war could be. Now, it's true that as things went, like obviously there was already enormous attention on, you know, trying to stop the rise of fascist Germany. And so in that case, it's not so clear, you know, maybe there would have been extra effort on that or something, uh, but there already was a lot. But still, I think that would have been helpful. Still, I also think that like more people thinking about that at the time, potentially even having a longer run thought on, um, the potential for atomic weapons to just radically change society. Again, just more people kind of working on these issues and taking them seriously, it seems would have resulted in a better outcome, I think. Yeah, like the the example of um, climate change is an interesting one. Now, like uh, bringing us back to today, what do you think we can actually do now to positively impact the long-term future? Uh, yeah, I think there's many things to do. Um, the things that are most factable and I'm most excited about yet most neglected are within the area of pandemic preparedness, where, you know, this was actually one of the things that really made me endorse the kind of long-termist approach, like really on a gut level, is just seeing that people who were bought into these ideas were worrying about, you know, pe global pandemics for many, many years, encouraging people to go into these areas and funding them since about 2016. There was a kind of community prediction that there would be a pandemic with at least 10 million dead in, this was in 2016 in the following decade, put like one in three probability on this. And then it's just, well, it happened and was enormously costly and, you know, this enormous tragedy. And it just made me think like, look, we just could have been preparing way more for, you know, allegedly unprecedented events, but that are actually like foreseeable. And I think we can do this again. And now here's the second part of it. After COVID, what response has there been? Well, after 9-11, there was... There was um, you know, a new Department of Homeland Security in the US, and just enormous kind of global response. And after COVID-19, it's been essentially crickets. But there are things that we can really do. So early detection. So you just all around the world have sites that are monitoring wastewater, screening that wastewater for all sorts of, all DNA in the sample, apart from human DNA. Is there any new pathogen that's like exponentially increasing? Then we can respond to pandemic like as soon as it arises. And then a second technology I'm particularly excited about is um, low wavelength light. 
that you can install in light bulbs and it kind of sterilizes a room essentially. So in just the same way that, you know, when I drink tap water, that has been chlorinated to stop it from giving me diseases. But yet the air I breathe is entirely like unpurified. Whereas with research and development, we could both ensure efficacy, safety, and also get the cost down. We could try to have this sort of lighting installed in light bulbs all around the world as part of building codes. We could prevent the next pandemic while also getting rid of most of the spiritually diseases. And that's just something that's like, look, it's on the table for us. <laughs> we actually have a really pretty good understanding of like how viruses work and what we could be doing to protect against them. It's so much on the table. And and I think that's one of the <laughs> things that, that, that made me quite a bit more pessimistic, really, in uh, the last years. Like, I think I would have expected that at some point we might uh, we might have a pandemic. I think like the, the public health experts, the epidemiologists, they were very clear that the, the, the risk is, is considerable. So that wasn't that surprising. But the fact that we lived through an entire pandemic, 23 million people, I think, um, dead, that's kind of the current um, excess mortality estimate. Like, obviously, everyone spent all of these months indoors, all the lockdowns that, that, uh, that we suffered through. And that we are now uh, slowly getting to the other side of that. And we are doing almost nothing to prevent the next pandemic. That I would have it's really wild. not predicted uh, I, two years yeah, ago. Yeah, me neither. I, was, I would have expected a much larger response from the governments of the world. And so in the United States, there was a bill called the Apollo Program. Oh, part of Build Back Better was funding the Apollo Program. To $70 billion would have been in, made enormous difference to the chance of the next pandemic. And yeah, just got completely stuck down because there was no one really championing it um, in Congress. Um, I know less about the UK, but it's also that I'm not, you know, there's nothing I'm kind of aware of yet in terms of like really major programs. Because also globally, I mean, just economics, just again, pure self-interest, like you mentioned to begin with, even just from the perspective of, you know, people in Europe and people in the United States, even if they only, they don't care about even their children, they just care about themselves. Um, they don't care about people you know, the global poor who will be most affected by a pandemic. Even just on those grounds, it makes enormous sense to be investing what is globally tiny amounts of money. And it's, yeah, it's still not happening. And so I think we just, yeah, really need to campaign for that. Yeah, we need to campaign for it. But I mean, these days, the effective altruism community increased so much in, in size, so many uh, smart young people that are part of that community um, that you helped to start. Funding has increased a lot. And I think the effective altruism community was good in pointing towards the risks of uh, future pandemics way before the pandemic. But what would you think were the big successes of the effective altruism community during the pandemic? So during the pandemic, I do think it's like there's definitely a lesson for humility there where I think, yeah, the EA community did much better at forecasting what was going to happen rather than compared to like actions that really made a big difference. So there was a significant amount of, you know, advice to governments about kind of locking down earlier rather than later as a result of, you know, actually understanding how bad this was going to get. And I think plausibly that led to, you know, many thousands or maybe tens of thousands of lives saved. There was some other things. I mean, you had this like... <laughs> 
in my view, you had one of the best COVID responses, completely pivoting your entire organization in order to provide the world's best data so that governments could make more informed decisions. There was also a project that was just giving um, individuals advice called microcovid.org that did very well, just so people could know, like, what's the size of the risks from the different daily activities. There was a project that got set up called One Day Sooner that was um, trying to get a kind of human challenge style set up where, you know, they... 60,000 people volunteered and said, look, I'm like young and like relatively healthy. COVID will pose a small risk to me. I volunteer to have a 50-50 chance of being infected. So I will get a vaccine. 50-50 chance of being infected. If those had been able to go ahead, that would have enabled us to have rolled out the vaccine kind of months in advance. And that would have been hundreds of thousands of lives saved. However, the main thing I think is just, man, I really wish we'd done more. Like, I wish we'd done so much more earlier so that perhaps if we'd been pushing for human challenge trials like years before, we actually could have had the regulation in place such that you could quickly do that in an emergency situation. Rather than what ultimately happened was that it took so long to convince policymakers that by the time the first human challenge trial occurred, we already, I think, had approved the kind of vaccines um, and it had been, you know, safety had been demonstrated by observational studies. And I mean, yes, yes, I agree with you. I think there, there, there were more opportunities to actually be helpful during the pandemic. And um, it's, it's a lesson in humility. And it connects to a bit of a larger point. I think the effect of altruism 10 years ago, when, when you and, and others um, initiated this movement, was very much at home in the global health, global development space. And there you have the big opportunity or the big advantage that you can learn very quickly. You can trial interventions um, from vaccines to medical treatments to cash transfers. And you can see what works and what doesn't, and then you can focus on those things that work and scale them up. Now, if we uh, hope to impact the far future, these trials will be very long. <laughs> and it's much harder to actually, uh, to actually learn what works and what doesn't. And then given that one of the key concerns for the future is the pandemic and maybe... Um, the effective altruism community didn't do as well as, as um, we would have wished. How worried are you about this lack of feedback and maybe this quite poor feedback um, from, this, from this closest case to, to an actual uh, big future risk uh, that we now just suffered through? Uh, yeah, so I think a couple of things. So I think... Um, One is, that, uh, one is that as soon as you start to accept the kind of just the model, in my view, model fact that like future people really matter and it's like this huge future ahead of us, then, um, then we have like failure of like true feedback from anything we do. So it can be like helping people in the short term and like, okay, we can be sure we're helping people in the short term. But how does that, how does that impact the very long term? Um, it would be kind of negligent to just like ignore that altogether. But then we've got to say like, actually for most of the impact we're having, because I think most of the impact of anything we do in the short term, or most things we do in the short term, are over the long term. It means we're having to just, you know, make our best guesses or say we don't know. A second though is just, um, again, this kind of distinction of like thinking long term and acting near term, where there are things we can do that do have feedback loops. So again, we have a pretty good understanding of 
you know, the mechanisms of viral transmission. So we can build a early monitoring wastewater system. Um, we can see like, does that work? Is that effective at doing this kind of more narrow target, this like shorter term target of just, is it picking up pathogens? Is it detecting new pathogens? Similarly, we can like um, see whether low wavelength lighting is working because the number of people having colds would reduce like an awful lot. So you can have like feedback in the short term. And then like, what's the link between that and the long term? Well, there, um, you know, there you do have to rely more on arguments and considerations. The kind of easiest case, I think, of something in the short term having very long term impacts is human extinction, where, you know, if, or other species extinction too, but focusing on human beings, like, it just is the case that like, if human beings go extinct, we're never coming back from that. <laughs> and so we just know that that's something that would have like this extremely long-term impact. It would impact like however long humanity's life expectancy would otherwise be. But then the final thing I'll say as well is just um, the main criticism that uh, effective altruism when focused on kind of global health and development had was, look, you're just focused on what you can measure. And, um, you know, there's this story that actually comes from a 15th century Turkish uh, um, satirist called Nalar uh, Dean, I think, um, which is about, okay, there's this drunk and they're looking for their keys and they're looking for the keys kind of under the light of a street lamp. And someone comes up and says, look, uh, why are you like, are your keys like under the light lamp post? Why are you looking there? And they say, oh, no, that's not where my keys are, but that's where the light is. And people would, you know, use that analogy and argue against. They say, look, you should not be focusing on the things that are easy to measure. The most important things are going to be much harder to measure. You just got to make your best judgments. And so you can see this as a kind of response to that, um, where, uh, where we're saying, look, yeah, we're trying to focus on the very most important things. Sometimes it's just really hard to know if you're making any progress. In the case of like reducing the risk of a third world war, a nuclear war, I think it's just, it is just very hard to know if you're making progress. Does that mean we shouldn't try? I think probably not. But it is certainly like if there's one kind of spectrum within effective altruism, it's probably on this dimension. There are some people who are like, look, if we don't have good feedback loops, I'm really pessimistic that we can make any progress. And those people, you know, still focus on global, you know, the sorts of you know, bed nets deworming, th um, things that are like making measurable impacts in the short term. And that's still scaling enormously, like um, getting closing in on a billion dollars per year. Um, and then there's the people who say, look, I'm willing to like accept, maybe I'm not going to have as reliable feedback loops, but then I'm focusing on what I think is, is really the most important thing. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com Com. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. At Evernorth Health Services, We believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Right, there are these two extremes. Uh, where do you fall yourself in this, uh, on this question? Um, what is the right mix uh, for, for the EA community more broadly or for anyone who wants to do good? Um, should they put all of their effort into global development or all of the effort into long-termism? So, I mean, I think any individual person will need to, you'll need to make a bet, unfortunately, because someone who's working half-time on uh, malaria and half-time on um, nuclear war or something is probably not going to be <laughs> as effective as, you know, if you've got two people, one, one specializes in each. Um, I'm really in favor of like an effective altruism community that has a diversity of different worldviews and a diversity of different areas that it's focusing on. Um, and that's for a few reasons. Um, uh, but one of which is just that I expect us to learn a lot more again over the next kind of coming decades. And I think like uh, a community that has a diverse array of focuses um, is just going to be one that's much more adaptable over time. Um, but then for me, me personally, um, I'm like more in the focus on what's most important direction. Um, although I definitely feel the worry about kind of, um, I feel the worry about the lack of feedback effects and so on. And within, you know, that does mean that I think, for example, p- pandemic preparedness, where I think we can be a lot more, we can be really very confident we're making progress on this, at least often, um, compared to some other issues you know, like reducing risk of nuclear war, it does make me a lot more excited about it. It makes me see that as the kind of lowest hanging fruit within um, long-termist work. And how do you think about this going forward? Is there some, is there some moment, is there some uh, signal, some heuristic that you're looking out for where you would think, 
okay, we're actually on the wrong on the wrong track with uh, focusing on long termism. Is there is there actually like we we actually don't succeed in in really reducing the the risks. We're not really succeeding in uh, improving the values that future generations might uh, inherit from us. Is there some is there some moment that you would wait for where you would say, I would want to achieve uh, that that this by by that point in time, and and if we don't succeed, then um, I really have to revise my my thinking on long termism. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, I think there's two ways I could revise my thinking. One is certainly just more kind of philosophical or theoretical arguments, just about value of the future versus near term, and. Um, uh, you know, some of the arguments I give in the book and what we have the future could certainly, um, I could certainly be con convinced out of that. Um, and then a second, yeah, I think, I mean, one area that's of particular interest is the field of AI alignment. Um, so the risk is that we might build um, increasingly powerful AI systems, but just not have a very good understanding of like, uh, what they're going to do, and especially as AI systems get more and more powerful, start to act more like actors in the world rather than just tools, it becomes increasingly important for us to be able to actually predict how they will act in the world. Um, this is an area where, in one important sense, you do get feedback systems. So the field of AI alignment is thinking, okay, how can we build AI models that are um, helpful, harmless, um, uh, and honest? Um, and so, I can have like a language model, something that like produces text, can engage in like basic uh, conversation. And I can say, okay, I want to train this such that it never lies. So it never tells me something false. Well, something that false that uh, it, I can have evidence like knows the answer to. And so we can do that. That's something where we can actually like get um, like positive feedback on. Uh, if it was the case that in kind of 10 years time, and this is field is like really in its infancy, um, and it's still up for debate, I think, kind of how much progress on the object level has been made, that there's been a lot of like clarifying, like understanding of the um, issues. Uh, but in terms of like, oh yeah, this paper has made this like really important advance on the alignment problem. Um, uh, I don't think we're quite there yet. And so if, in the, if it was 10 years time, and that's still true, um, that would be a pretty, um, yeah, I think like that would be a pretty harsh blow to that as a field at least. And so then you would need to, pandemics and just kind of, there's just so many things we can do to reduce the risk that um, I guess, I don't know, it could again be like we do all these things and they just keep failing and they keep failing. Um, or maybe we just keep learning that there's like surprising kind of uh, backfiring effects or something. Um, for pandemics, I think that's kind of less likely. Um, but it could be the case that if in all of the cause areas that we think are kind of most important by long-termist lights, um, they, we just keep finding like 10 years time, we've made almost no progress on it then yeah, I would, I'd really want to rethink. Yeah, then at, at that point, I'd be like really think, rethinking things. Again, it might still be all like philosophically justified by um, how things ultimately get, like benefit the long-term future. But um, 
the set of priorities would be like very different and might look a lot closer to commonsensically kind of building a flourishing society or something. And overall, I guess the idea of long-termism really hinges on um, actually being able to do something concretely that um, impacts the long-term future positively. So if we, we keep on not seeing uh, successes and th then I think, yeah. yeah, like I agree with you. Like I'm getting the and questions here in from, oh, sorry. Like, okay, sure. sure. I, I guess I'll say one thing as well, which is mm -hmm. that, um, you know, within the people that I know and my own views are kind of tend to be more concerned with, um, uh, you know, avoiding these risks of catastrophe or focusing on like better values rather than, um, you know, like technological progress or something. Um, whereas if you think, okay, none of these catastrophes doesn't make any sense. I think in general kind of innovation is something that can benefit um, over like benefits the world over very long time frames, but like centuries or thousands of years maybe, because you move the entire kind of frontier of um, uh, kind of tech progress forward. And so maybe I would be really pushing on things like clean technology, um, which I think is just like very robustly good from a variety of perspectives. Um, also like, yeah, potentially lots of biomedical technology as well, because, you know, you've got this upfront cost of the investment in R&D and then you've got it, you've got the idea and you just got that idea forever and then future people can build on it as well. And so I think the kind of long-termisty perspective, even if all of these current priority areas don't pan out, would maybe fun, it was at least uh, favor, uh, a little bit more like focus on promoting like innovation in areas like biomedicine and um, clean tech than right. one might otherwise think. Yeah, you have this very good uh, passage there in the book on uh, clean energy, calling it a win-win-win-win-win situation because it just... Um... A win-win-win. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, like, I actually made a mistake in the book. Oh. I should have had a sixth win. <laughs> I only realized after writing it. So Which one is the additional one there? Um, uh, the one that I missed out is just, I think actually clean technology is beneficial for society's values too, because um, there's, you know, what's known as the resource curse. Um, if, if you can run a country by stealing natural, by just just on the basis of natural resources, that provides uh, an incentive for small groups to take power and install dictatorships and a means by which those dictatorships can um, be sustained. And so it's most in the news with Russia at the moment, which uh, I think one political scientist described as um, uh, a gas station with an army. Um, whereas if you're, if you're a country that has to rely on, instead on kind of, just people working and producing producing value, um, then that's much more likely to favor kind of more egalitarian, democratic um, social structure. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And it uh, connects back to this earlier point where we discussed about what uh, what a long-termist could have done uh, a century ago. Um, like that's also a question that, that I keep seeing here in the questions that are coming in. Uh, for example, Carly asks, what can I do as an individual to ensure a good future for the generations to come? And another um, question that's coming in from someone who just finished your book yesterday is, is particularly asking, what is feasible for them as mere mortals? <laughs> mere mortals. So, so I think one... I mean, like many of the points that you were discussing earlier uh, from far UVC light uh, to sterilized rooms, these are very far out of uh, out of um, like... Very, yeah. yeah, they're not people, 
yeah, so they're not issues that most people are thinking about and encountering in their day-to-day lives. And you might think, oh, wow, well, what can I even do about any of this? Um, and I actually think the upshot from the book and from Effective Altruism is just that you as an individual can make an enormous positive contribution. Um, I think the simplest way of seeing that is just thinking about donations. So I think for uh, pretty much anyone who's you know middle-class member of a rich country like the UK or the US, uh, you could give some percentage of your income. We have this organization giving what we can encourages people to give at least 10%. Um, some people give more. That means you can target your donation to support whoever are the very best people doing the very best programs, working on the very most important problems. And in a very real way, you can be participating, like you are contributing. So, you know, you run our world and data, it's run by donations. Like the people who are donating to our world and data are kind of causally responsible for the information that you put on that, up on there, just as much as the people who are like actually writing the text. Um, and so I think that is just one way that anyone can contribute um, uh, in general. Um, the second thing we emphasize a lot is via career choice as well. Um, that's, oh, and I should say with donations, we now have just created kind of a long-termism fund. If you go onto givingwhatwecan.org, then that's just, it's a place you can donate and experts will then um, ensure that the money goes to where, where we think it will currently have the kind of highest leverage, highest impact. And so then the other thing we say is kind of career choice as well. This is obviously a bigger ask for most people. Um, and it's an easier decision to make if you're young um, before you've really settled on a career. It's also hard, a little harder to give, um, you know, very particular advice uh, because it's, people vary so much in their skills and interests. Uh, however, we have this whole website, 80,000hours.org, um, and you can go on there and get like, you know, really deep advice on how you can have a really big um, positive impact. Um, so yeah, those are the things I can most say. And that means funding or working in things like pandemic prevention, like ending nuclear war, or reducing the risk of nuclear war, safely governing the rise of AI. Right. Um, and and uh, anyone who's listening, please add more questions to, to, the, uh, to the chat and I'll, I'll get back to them um, and, and ask Will more of your questions. Now, today is the book launch here in the UK. In the US, your book launched already. And as I said at the beginning, you did uh, many interviews in the past um, weeks. Um, what's, your, what's your take on how this all went in the last um, weeks? How <laughs> it's all went? Uh, so, yeah, one take is it's just all been pretty overwhelming. So you gave the list of media at the start of this. That was uh, many times more than I was expecting to get. <laughs> Um, certainly in terms of how high profile it was. Like if you told me even just two months ago now, I was going to be on the cover of time, I'd be like, what? <laughs> like, this is so absurd. So one thing it's certainly been overwhelming. Um, honestly, the overall, I'm overall just happy as well with the commentary. Like when I think about the large majority of the commentary, um, it's been like positive. The time story in particular I would just like recommend to anyone. I just really thought it captured the essence of what we're doing um, with effective altruism. Um, the thing, then there's also been some helpful critical commentary as well. So Kieran Setia is an excellent philosopher, uh, wrote a review um, in the Boston Review. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I disagree with aspects of it. I think there were parts of the book he missed. But I was also just like, I was just, ha I'm happy to see. I like think these ideas should be debated and discussed. And like, uh, I was happy to see some like really engaged commentary there. Um, the thing that I've been most surprised by or like disappointed by is kind of misinformation. Um, I mean, I have a bad habit of just checking kind of all critical Twitter, Twitter comments that I can, I can find. Um, but there's just so many kind of uh, false claims going around about what I believe or focus on. There's this idea that people are sometimes saying like, oh, long-termism, it's just an excuse for very rich people to keep their wealth rather than, um, and like feel good about themselves rather than focusing on like the most um, pressing problems. Whereas it's like exactly the opposite is the, the case where via effective altruism and then long-termism, we've resulted in like enormous <laughs> changes in how uh, many people, but including rich people are spending their money away from consumption, buying yachts and so on. And instead towards, firstly, just some things that are purely like global health and development focused. Now over a billion dollars have gone to, via effective altruism has gone to global health and development. And also to things that are just really good in the short term as well as in the long term. So I've been advising this foundation, Future Fund, um, which you know scaled up from zero to about $150 million in the first six months of its operation. Um, and you know the primary, the largest cause area was pandemic preparedness and prevention. And again, like if you don't think that future pandemics are going to be you know, likely and like enormously harmful in the short term, then um, I think kind of really mistaken. And so I think it's unfortunate. Basically, I kind of like Elon tweets about you and there's a, <laughs> there's a, there's a certain uh, fraction of the world for whom it's like you are now gone. <laughs> and it's like, uh, yeah, you're kind of never going to be supportive of. And then something that's kind of less like um, misinformation, but at least strange to me is like, more recent articles, there's been a very intense focus on uh, risk of what I call kind of AI takeover, um, uh, occasionally with like Terminator photos kind of thing. Um, and that's like, in one sense, that's completely fair because that's like a big aspect of, you know, the broader effective altruism community is like actually really worrying about um, risks from advanced artificial intelligence, um, including risk of loss of control. On the other hand, it's a bit surprising for me because it's like, it's not really something I work on. Uh, it's only a very small part of the book. Um, and so it does feel a bit like they're honing in on that because that's the kind of spiciest thing rather than um, rather than the kind of what I'd see as the main messages in the book. Let me ask one follow-up question on um, on the on how the media went. Um, like, why do you think... Are people interested in in spreading this misinformation about, about long-termism, where does it come from and who's motivated um, to go in that direction? Like, I mean, if you, if you think that this has been uh, most surprising, yeah, like, mean, what's your explanation for, for where this comes from? Uh, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One, I think, is just as soon as any idea starts getting big, you're going to have debate and criticism and the quality of online commentary... <laughs> Um, is often, you know, the things that I'm like really getting upset tend to be more like Twitter or other areas. 
and you know the bar is pretty low in terms of you know reasonableness there uh the algorithm i think kind of uh rewards um yeah rewards anger and debate um there are yeah then there are i guess like there are like um uh specific uh cases which are um you know one person who just uh is very very active and uh his view is just that actually civilization is a bad thing um it would be better if we just collapsed and never came uh because he just thinks well the suffering in the future is just like too great and human humanity is just like a bad thing overall um and that's a view i disagree with and so like they can uh that person's like very um keen on kind of like yeah be uh aggressively attacking right. us and smearing us in like whatever way possible. I mean that's actually a question that uh, that I also got here from from one of the um viewers um he or she says they have met a person uh who told them that it was the that it would be the best thing for the planet if humans would go extinct what do you say to someone who believes this uh yeah so the thing i'd say is i have a whole chapter <laughs> on this in what we are the future um uh chapter nine, in fact um and so in the chapter i talk about a few things one is just okay let's just take the world today or like the world 2022 is that world good or bad like better than nothing like if i could click my fingers and have blankness an empty universe rather than that world would that be better um and well let's just start off with human beings like do humans overall have lives that um uh have kind of positive well-being um i go through like a variety of different sorts of psychological research including some research that um i had to just commission myself because there was very little um in the way of work that was actually done on this um but basically but if you ask people um in both the us and india uh do you think are you glad to have been born or do you kind of regret being born and you can ask that in a few different ways do you think your life has more happiness than suffering then um well over 70% of people say yes that they are glad to have been born they think their life has had more happiness than suffering there is a small faction um on the order of about 10% who say no as well and so that's important too um i think actually even just within healthcare i, I think a lot would change about how we think about things when if we take seriously the fact that um some people think their lives have been have been worse than zero uh then i think there's like obviously lots of other considerations i think the amount of suffering we inflict on the animals in factory farms um is absolutely enormous uh i do think that the trend in human well-being um has been positive uh i think people on average are much better off today than they were a few hundred years ago um where life a few hundred years ago was really very bad um uh you know surgery without anesthetic um 14 hour days um doing grueling like farming labor uh most people were in some form forced labor as well just like um it's pretty, the past is a pretty dark place and then um when i look to the future um i do think there's an asymmetry that like points in the direction of um that gives us kind of grounds for optimism where in the future i think just um most beings will be actors rather than patients um where like an animal in a factory farm as a patient doesn't have control over its own life i don't expect factory farming to persist like far into the future um 
and then secondly, people who are actors, like in the sense that like they can choose how their life goes, combined with the much greater kind of scientific knowledge and technological ability we'll have in the future, suggests, well, at least those people will be trying to make their lives better. And they'll, you know, we'll have kind of coordination that will allow that to happen. And so that overall makes me think, uh, you know, the world today is probably better than nothing. <laughs> I think I'd prefer it to a completely blank universe. Um, and I think it's on it, like I think there are major risks by which things could get worse, and we should really work to reduce those risks to zero. But it makes me think that on average, um, as science and technological advancement continues, it'll um, get better rather than worse. Right. One one last question on the reception from Karim, uh, who is asking: In which countries have your ideas been best received? Oh wow, that's a great um, question. Uh, so doing good better sold weirdly well in South Korea, <laughs> like more, sold more copies there than anywhere else. Uh, and I'm still not quite sure um, why that was. Uh, in terms of uptake, the country that see, the, at least the large country that seems to me like it's most overrepresented with people interested in and engaged in effective altruism is Australia, actually. And uh, I'm not sure why that is. But I think it could be about kind of no-nonsense attitude, uh, like culture that Australia has, um, where, you know, effective altruism certainly embodies a kind of relatively simple pragmatism um, about it. And that is uh, something I think that, like, you know, resonates particularly with people in Australia. Interesting. Like very, very different uh, countries in many ways, South Korea and Australia. For sure, yeah. I mean, you uh, hinted at some of the reasons for optimism uh, just now, but thinking about like the overall idea that more people are interested in actually making the world a better place rather than uh, uh, being uh, sitting on the sidelines and, and letting bad things happen. Um, but overall, also going back to this earlier uh, point that we discussed on maybe the the um, disappointing reaction to the to the pandemic what makes you optimistic about long-termism for the next few years like what the what can the um, community achieve and what are your reasons for optimism there uh yeah so one reason for optimism is just the really extraordinary growth in interest um in long-termism effective altruism where it's really just many many thousands of people around the world who are feeling inspired and saying, yes, like I want to make the world better. I'm, I think there are some really pressing risks and I think we can, we can take action to mitigate them. And so one is just like influx of people. Um, and then secondly, this influx of um, uh, kind of philanthropic resources behind that as well, where, you know, again, this has been convincing philanthropists to put their money where their mouths are and um, support um, highly effective projects. Um, so that's one thing. And then secondly is just, um, I think there are just a whole bunch of uh, projects that seem very exciting and like, you know, close to, you know, what we call shovel ready. So one organization is um, Alvia, which uh, got started. So there's a lot of new kind of startup nonprofit um, organizations or socially motivated organizations. So Alvia 
within 60 days of being launched in December, had already designed um, a vaccine specific to Omicron BA2. I think it was the um, first vaccine of that form designed in the world. And they really want to, they want to do just many things. One is having a platform such that, again, if a new pandemic breaks out, we can have all of the infrastructure is in place such that you have vaccines um, that are targeted to the specific pathogen going into people's arms, like within a month or two months, rather than the nine months that we had to wait for um, in the COVID-19 pandemic. That's like totally possible. We just need to invest the resources into doing it. Uh, they also want to scale up these kind of early detection systems. And so again, I think that's just something that is going to happen. Uh, again, this kind of low wavelength lighting, um, that's something that like we need to be investing a lot more in. Um, but something, again, I'm kind of cautiously optimistic about. Uh, then um, another kind of area that's kind of giving me cause for hope is the massive uptake in the use of kind of forecasting as well, where this is a way, basically just techniques that you can use to gather and aggregate forecast, precise forecasts for many different people, such that we can move out of the realm of saying, um, well, how, you know, a war with Ch between the US and China could happen, could not. Um, uh, we can move beyond that and instead like get a kind of accurate and well-calibrated kind of probabilistic estimate. And then that means we can really start to prioritize things better. It means that governments can make kind of much more um, effective and well-informed decisions. Because I think that is something that is maybe like, again, a kind of crucial lesson from COVID-19 is that something we need to invest in is nimble, flexible, adaptable um, uh, kind of governmental decision-making. Right. And, yeah. That's a... Uh... Work in that area makes me optimistic too. Right. That, that's a good list of, of reasons to, to be optimistic and maybe also um, a good place to end this conversation. Uh, we're reaching the end of the hour. My thanks are to, to you, Will. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks for uh, uh, your questions from the audience. And thanks to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.